There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and this week our arts and books editor Samir Rahim talks to Shakespeare scholar Emma Smith about what the bard made of the plagues he lived through. In the early days of the lockdown, many recalled how Shakespeare possibly wrote the gloomy King Lear under quarantine. If he could write a grim masterpiece, the tempting thought run, then the rest of us could at least have a shot at finishing that novel. But there's another work that eliminates a different, a racier and a lighter side of the epidemic, argues Emma. His runaway best-selling poem, Venus and Adonis. Emma Smith, thanks so much for joining us on the Prospect uh, interview. Thanks, it's really um, great to see you. In times of crisis, it seems that we turn to our cultural touchstones, and there's no greater touchstone, of course, than Shakespeare, the playwright who has seemed to have proved um, to be not for an age, but for all time. And, and Emma, you wrote a piece for us in Prospect um, about how Shakespeare did indeed live in a time of plague and pestilence, and that those themes seep into his work but perhaps in slightly unexpected ways. Yeah, I think it's really striking that although the plague shapes Shakespeare's lifetime and it shapes must have shaped all Elizabethan Londoners, they must have been um, they must have found ways of not being neurotic in a way about looking for signs of plague because they just lived with it uh, all the time and it broke out into um, epidemic proportions about every decade or so. Um, and I think that obviously has a huge effect on Shakespeare's work, but he never uh, writes about it directly. There are other writers in the period who are much more documentary, they're much more, their imaginations are much more fired by plague living and urban life under the threat of plague. And Shakespeare's not like that. He doesn't ever really, I think, write about, write directly about his any aspect of his own time. And that's one of the reasons that he has been so amenable to other times and other places, taking up his work and finding it meaningful. Yeah, so you, you, you write about uh, the the, um, the poem Venus and Adonis and, uh, and how actually um, there's quite a lot of comedy and, and sex um, uh, associated with uh, something as uh, deathly as the plague. 
Yeah, one thing that was different about the bubonic plague from what we think about um, uh, disease, disease in our own time is that the people who were most susceptible to it were young people. And I think that's uh, an important to its kind of cultural ramifications. And in Venus and Adonis, which um, was Shakespeare's, probably most, Shakespeare's most popular work in his own lifetime, if you had asked uh, an Elizabethan in the street, what do you think of William Shakespeare? They would probably have said, you mean the guy who wrote Venus and Adonis. So that's very different from the way we think about him now. Venus and Adonis was a popular poem because really it's a sort of soft focus, erotic story for young men about how the goddess of love, Venus, absolutely throws herself at a young man, Adonis, who isn't at all interested. Uh, and you can see the scope for um, young men uh, perhaps who aren't as um, uh, aren't, aren't having the goddess of Venus throwing herself at them um, to enjoy that kind of poem, and one of the ways I think Shakespeare, uh, who's writing this poem when the theatres are shut for the plague, uh, incorporates the plague into the poem, is to make uh, a kind of alliance between plague uh, and the passion of love, sexual passion, the heat uh, of desire. And in a way, I think, in a quite an unexpected way, uh, he, he, he suggests that perhaps the response to plague is not tragedy, uh, but the instruction to be, uh, to be fruitful, to kind of, to, to, to connect, to be with other people. That's all the stuff of comedy for Shakespeare. It's something, of course, that we can't really do very much right now, uh, but we can, we, can read, uh, uh, we can read the poems. Um, in your book, This Is Shakespeare, you have this really interesting idea that we should value Shakespeare not for his, as it were, completeness, um, uh, but what you call his gappiness, the things that he leaves out or things that he perhaps includes um, but allows to remain mysterious. Um, that's kind of a fascinating idea. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I think for a long time we've we've thought that Shakespeare's valuable because he gives us meaning or he gives us uh, advice or he gives us a kind of ethics for, for modern life or something. And I, I think I don't think that. I think why Shakespeare is valuable is that there is space for us in the works. I think the works are incomplete. I think they ask questions that they don't really answer and that that's not a lack. In fact, that's an enormously permissive space uh, for us, just ordinary readers or theatre makers or theatre goers, um, to, to find a space for our for our own concerns, personal or, or, or social and cultural, and to see those expressed in the plays. So I think it's the gappiness that I um, uh, that I, that I find in Shakespeare that for me explains that sort of million dollar question about why has Shakespeare been so durable and it's not really Shakespeare who's been durable it's us with our kind of creativity and our engagement with the with those works and one of those big gaps of course is um, Shakespeare's own life um, how much do we actually know about it is it that we don't know very much as is often said or is it that we do know quite a bit but what there is isn't isn't as interesting as we would like it to be. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting the question. Um, we don't know what we would like to know, which is, how did he feel about things? What what was his emotional life? What was his, um, yeah, what was his inner life like? So we don't really know any anything about that. Uh, we don't have any 
letters. Uh, we don't have any other sort of personal material, but we do have a lot of the kind of public traces that people leave in the records, um, records of uh, property, uh, legal cases, um, baptism and, and marriage and, and, and funeral and all those kinds of things. So it's not true that we don't know anything. And in fact, people have been assiduous in combing the archives and finding out lots about Shakespeare and, and Shakespeare's traces in those records. But it's that we don't know uh, what we would most like to know. And I guess there's a slight tinge that some of what we know, we don't really like. So we know that Shakespeare goes to court to get uh, a debt back. Uh, for instance, we know that he is in trouble himself for hoarding uh, malt, uh, a, a, an important commodity, and he's hoarding it so that he will, you know, it's a speculation, so that the price will go up. We know that he's uh, on the side of the enclosure of common land around Stratford, uh, and these all seem slightly at odds with the more liberal or sort of generous minded um, man we, we deduce back from the plays. Yeah, in recent times, uh, there's been a sort of a reactivation of interest in uh, Shakespeare's son, Hamnet, who died in 1596. I think Freud and, and Joyce wrote about this um, as well, but there have been, you know, there's Ben Elton's sitcom, Upstart Crow, and the Branner film, All Is True, uh, have talked about it. And there's a novel out this year by Maggie O'Farrell called Hamnet, which seems to say... Uh, drawn the fact, you know, Shakespeare's son died. Um, this may well have affected his writing of Hamlet and his work. How useful do you think that is as a way of approaching, you know, a text like Hamlet? Well, I think uh, I think the the interest in Hamlet has been has been itself uh, really creative. It's a wonderful moment in Upstart Crow, isn't it? When the when the the tone of that series just completely flips. There's nothing funny to be said about that. This is just a moment of terrible sadness and grief. And I think that's, um, uh, I think that's brilliantly done. And I think uh, Maggie O'Farrell's novel is, is absolutely fantastic. And there's the chapter I love in it is the chapter where she describes how the, how the plague gets to Stratford, you know, this imaginative kind of tour de force of, of, of that journey. I, um, I think that for me, what's important about Hamlet is, even if it is drawing somehow on Shakespeare's own personal griefs, it's been able to leverage them to think about mourning uh, in a more public and a more sort of political and social uh, social sense. In part, the interest in Hamlet has been precisely, I think, to try to flesh out a more interior or emotional life for Shakespeare, um, when actually we've got no evidence even that he was at Hamlet's funeral, for instance. We don't really know uh, how he how he responded to that. So all, all these other writers have been responding to a different kind of gappiness, I suppose, which is thinking what must that what must that have been like? Um, and as I say, I think I think Hamlet, the play, gets its enormous cultural resonance from the fact that even if it has its roots in something private, it's able uh, to make that available to all kinds of people with different experiences. And as you point out in your book, the name Hamlet is actually quite interesting um, in that um, Shakespeare changes the source that he was working from and to make Hamlet and Hamlet's father um, have... It's also called Hamlet, he has the, has the same name. Um, 
and and you, you put forth the suggestion that in fact that the play might even be named after the old Hamlet, not not the one who says to be or not to be. Yeah, or in fact that question, you know, who is the real Hamlet in this play? That might be one of the um, part of the, the 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 kind of burden that affects Prince Hamlet, the main character in the play. Um, is he really the main character in his own story? And that's part of what's so interesting. That's one of the questions I think the play raises: Are we, uh, are we the, the, are we the main character in our own story? When we die, is the rest silence? Of course, actually, it's not, is it? I mean, solipsistically, we want to think so, but in fact, everybody else keeps on keeps on talking. So I was interested in why Shakespeare would choose to change sources where father and son had quite different names into one which wants to overlay the father and the son as in some way um, perhaps the same person or uh, it gives a more it, it gives a less literal version, way perhaps of thinking about the idea that Hamlet is, is haunted by his father you know he feels like a kind of um, uh, George Bush Jr. Or, or something, you know, kind of Hamlet Jr. How do you live up to uh, the, the the name the, the name of your father? And there's all that stuff about old Hamlet being so brave and sledding the Polacks and uh, and all of those things. He feels a he feels a terrible burden for a young man to bear actually in the play. And you say also that you know the play itself may have had been in an earlier version uh, by another playwright. Um, I think Thomas Kidd, and also in Spanish Tragedy is a play that he draws on a lot. So in a way, the play itself seems to be burdened by the history of uh, previous uh, similar stories. Yeah, I think I think there's, there's lots of resonances of that, um, uh, that the son, you know, burdened by the stronger father. Uh, and, and that's that's a uh, you know that's a, a sort of psychological phenomenon that I think Shakespeare uh, ex- explores a lot. But it's interesting to think about it uh, on a play level. And one of the things I wanted to think about about Hamlet the play was the way um, we've always thought about it as a play which really looks forward, that anticipates the modern world in some extraordinary ways, that anticipates Freud and and all kinds of ways of thinking. Uh, uh, that, that we associate with our own time. I wanted to think about it as a play sort of from the very end of the 16th century. Uh, Queen Elizabeth is, 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 is very old. There's no obvious successor. There's a lot of anxiety about the future and that maybe this is a play which uh, instead turns backwards and orients itself backwards and thinks about the past, um, the past in the theatre, the past of uh, religion, the Catholic past, uh, and, and, and the, the kind of past of a more heroic age. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, speaking of heroic ages, so, so the history plays, and um, particularly the Henry IV plays, um, uh, are quite interesting for what Shakespeare does with his sources because... The, he introduces this character, Falstaff, who um, uh, he sort of basically invents, doesn't he, and sort of drops into this history play um, and uh, it sort of turns the play into a weird amalgam where it's like one of Shakespeare's funniest plays, but it's a history and um, the history aspect gets sort of pushed to the pushed to the side, doesn't it? What was he doing with Falstaff? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, I think Falstaff is a was a real bravura character performance, um, possibly for uh, the great comic actor Shakespeare writes for Will Kemp, um, but certainly he was a stage stealer. You know, he was a scene stealer, and uh, people loved Falstaff. They wanted more of him. In fact, Shakespeare, I think, writes the second part of Henry the Fourth not because Henry IV is interesting and not even really because Prince Hal is all that interesting, but because Falstaff is an absolute winner. Box office, it's a kind of box office gold. Um, and that has some really interesting effects on the play because one strand of the Henry IV plays is the sort of prodigal son play. So the Prince of Wales, Prince Hal, is uh, wasting his, his time and his energies and behaving in this very sort of loose ways, drinking and, uh, and, and wenching and, and so on. And Falstaff is the great sort of Lord of Misrule in that world. Falstaff is the alternative father that Prince Hal turns towards away from his proper father, uh, Henry IV, and away from all the responsibilities that suggests. Now, in order for the prodigal son story to work out, the prince, prince Hal has to repent of that and turn back to his proper father. And so there's a kind of moral line in the play that has to end one way. But there's also the point that what everybody is enjoying in the in the theatre is Falstaff. And the, the, the theatrical enjoyment completely, I think, eclipses the moral story. And so when Shakespeare has to separate Prince Hal from Falstaff in order that Prince Hal can take on his kingly role, I think audiences feel actually that Hal has been cruel, uh, callous, and that Falstaff is, is, is their hero, is their kind of anti-hero. In the book, I try and think about him in relation to Homer Simpson, who I think is a similar figure. He does everything sort of counter to how we're supposed to do things. He's completely not interested in the sort of pieties. Um, uh, you know, there's a great Homer line, which is something like, if at first you don't succeed, give up. You know, he sets up the sort of pious line and we think we know what's coming next. And he says, yeah, you know, whatever. And that's a very Falstaff kind of kind of structure. And people people loved it they, and they love it now. It sort of overspills, you know, the, it doesn't he? Almost literally because he's so fat and you talk about his fatness. You know, he overspills into other plays, he overspills into even in Henry V, he's this ghostly presence, isn't he? No, you're so right. I think his physical fatness it is almost a kind of metaphor for the the, the way he, he can't be kept 
uh, in in bounds. It can't be kept in moral bounds or theatrical ones. Yeah, he's he's a real disruptor, um, and and I think Shakespeare creates something that he can't quite control in Falstaff. Perhaps partly because of the way that the character was so brilliantly embodied by by the actor. And with Prince Hal, he's just um, he, he needs to. You know, obviously he becomes Henry V, this great hero, and he needs to sort of set him up as being, you know, as you say, this loose character at the start, but not too loose, you know. So he doesn't actually do the robbery, does he? Um, uh, and, he and he then he says in his speech, doesn't he, that um, I, I'm just pretending. Don't worry, don't worry, everyone. It's fine. I, I, I will grow up to be the great king, king that you you know uh, me to be. And it's, it seems sort of slightly cynical, doesn't it, in the way it's presented? Yes, I think that's right. I think that speech he has um, in the tavern, everybody else leaves and suddenly he snaps into a different mode and he says directly to the audience, I'm just uh, hanging out with these guys for my own purposes now, but I'm going to and, and I'm going to look better because my reformation uh, will, will, will you know, be so transformative. Um, and I think, yeah, for, perhaps for Shakespeare's first audiences, that was meant to be reassuring. Don't worry, this is a prince who really does know what his duty is. But you're absolutely right. I think in the theatre, it almost always comes across as calculating and uh, cold. And it's not that. It's, it's not all that... Um, uh, likeable and and I think it plays on something that Shakespeare um, does quite often and we perhaps haven't noticed enough I think when people are alone on stage uh, in Shakespeare's plays it's because they are deceitful or they've got something to hide it's not because they are giving us necessarily a great moment of insight into their troubled souls it's because they are they can't speak um, the true, the true thing they think about in front of other people, because it's it's wrong, or it's it, it it's it's betrays them, or it's treacherous. And Prince Hal's a good example of that. I mean, he's more like Iago in that way from Othello than he is perhaps like Hamlet. I was trying to think as reading as reading your book about you know who's the opposite of Falstaff in Shakespeare? Who's the character who seems to be the complete um, um, diametric, diametrically opposed person? And it seems to me, maybe I don't know what you think. Maybe Coriolanus is is that is that character um and uh you were talking earlier about the poor and the class element in shakespeare and shakespeare being a sort of hoarder and uh a favor of enclosures uh, and, and in coriolanus the play um it, it doesn't give a very good account of um you know as it were the mob or the or the or the or the, or the um uh, uh the masses as it were and it seems often to perhaps side with um, the people in power rather than uh, the people starving and wanting food. That's such a great, that's such a great comparison. I hadn't really thought of that explicitly, that Coronanus would be an opposite of Falstaff, but as you say it, it really works well, and that where Falstaff is about sort of performance and amplification and more, 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 Coriolanus is about uh, restraint and concealment and, and less less of everything and and you're right that um Coriolanus uh which is I think Shakespeare's most class conscious play I mean is about a a class conflict between the Roman patricians um embodied by Coriolanus and the people the plebeians it's um it, it seems to be more on the side of the patricians than the plebeians it's even though Coriolanus himself is not a very likable, likable character, 
um, it's an interesting place to try to see if we can locate Shakespeare's own views. Um, and, and you're right that, that the the um, biographical information is kind of tantalising there. But what the history of performance of Coriolanus shows us is that it has been possible to show the these two sides in quite different ways, with quite different sort of contemporary resonances, and some performances are much more uh, m- much more pro plebeian perhaps than the, the than the play can sometimes uh, can sometimes seem to be yeah as you say his he sounds to be um almost willfully unsympathetic character he doesn't seem to have the depths that um other uh, shakespearean lead characters do but you point out brilliantly and this is something that you know I had noticed um, in the play that there's a moment when he talks about um, him being uh, hidden away by a poor man uh, who he does feel some sympathy with. It's a sort of tossed off anecdote and it's sort of never referred to again. It's one of those moments where Shakespeare gives you something and then sort of leaves it there and then (laughs) you don't quite know what to do with it, but it does add some kind of texture to his, um, to this character, doesn't it? Yeah, he's, he's, um, He's exhausted after the Battle of Coriol, from which he gets his name, and before he goes off uh, to to sort of you know recover himself, he says, "A poor man in Coriol was kind to me and make sure he's okay." As as we sort of sack the city essentially, and the commander says, "Yeah, fine. What's his name?" And Coriolanus says, "I've forgotten," and it's really hard to know what to do with that. Is that a sign that the this machine-like military man, one of the things about Coriolanus not being a character of depth and interiority is he's like a kind of um, cyborg or something with his armour, you know, sort of welded onto him. He feels as if he's got no soft interior. He's just this, lots of people call him a machine uh, in 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 the play or a kind of a thing, a, a thing, uh, an idea that, that, that he's not really human. Um, so is is this a sign that he really is uh, a human after all and, and the, the the battle has taken it out of him or is it a sign that really when it comes to it he couldn't care less about this poor man it's another time when Shakespeare's made a change to his source in the source it's a rich man and Shakespeare's changed it to a poor man which is obviously significant in a play about about class warfare if, if, essentially and he might have been suffering for what we call now PTSD or something equivalent to that. Is that... Yes, I think that's. I, th- I think that's. Um, that's been a really interesting um, uh, angle to think about Shakespeare's psychology, and it's been also applied to someone like Macbeth, who we hear about at the beginning as you know being very um, almost psychotically brave in in a battle situation, and how those hallucinations and stuff that haunt Macbeth might be connected to uh, to PTSD. One of the other fascinating themes in the book they picked up, pick up is um, uh, in schools, uh, at least when I, was, when I was at school, often we're taught Shakespeare um, and we have to look for imagery and uh, we look at the metaphors and we look at the language and that's very understandable. There's such a fecund um, uh, uh, linguistic... Um, treasure trove that is Shakespeare um, but he was also uh, a great plotter uh, and construct as you'd expect from a man of the theatre and, and um, there was something I was really pleased for you to see that you, you were pointing out because I think it's sometimes underestimated. Yes I think it's you know partly you're absolutely right the imagery and the poetry which we're encouraged to think about and, and also characters that it's uh, that, that Shakespeare 
you know, we're, we're told or we're encouraged to see Shakespeare inventing these realistic characters and it's them, somehow they, who propel the story. And one of the things I was interested in at different points in the book was to think about um, Shakespeare doing the opposite of a modern novelist who might you might hear saying, well, I invented my characters and I didn't really quite know what they were going to do, but I let them, you know, I sort of watched them do what they were going to do, which is a very kind of character-driven uh, view of the world. I think Shakespeare starts with his plots. I think that's probably how all playwrights worked. Um, and then he invents the characters that he needs in order to pursue that plot. And at its most successful, we hardly see that the characters are in the service of the plot. But there are points where we perhaps the history of Shakespeare reception hasn't felt it was very successful like uh, I talk about comedy of errors which people have felt is too plot driven and there are these two pairs of twins and they're not really differentiated there's not much about character but I also talk about measure for measure where an important character Mariana uh, who is going to help bring a, bring the play to a successful conclusion that character is really only introduced about two-thirds of the way through the play um, and that seems to be a moment where the plot has sort of forgotten that it's going to need this person and, and delays introducing them. Um, and those are moments, I think, where we can see uh, plot uh, driving these plays and characters kind of slotting in to perform uh, allotted roles. And I, I enjoyed that because sometimes I think we do overstate Shakespeare's character um, uh, sort of character development. I, I've met relatively few people, I think, from Shakespeare's plays, even though we often feel as if we ought to say that we have. Yeah, whatever else we do know or don't know about Shakespeare, we know he was a man of the theatre, an actor, with a practical awareness of what uh, what audiences wanted. I think that's a really important thing uh, to, to bear in mind, that he is um, working with actors who he knows well, so he knows what they can do. The actors' capacities change what's possible for him. It's quite clear that in the early years of the 17th century, the king's men employ a young male actor who can play mature, powerful women in a really compelling way. They obviously haven't had that person before because there are no characters like that in the plays of Shakespeare before that time, but then we get... Lady Macbeth and we get Cleopatra and we get Volumnia, the mother of Coriolanus and for other playwrights we get characters like the Duchess of Malfi and so on. So we can see, uh, we already talked about how Will Kemp um, and Falstaff became inseparable such that I think when Will Kemp leaves uh, the, the acting company, um, Falstaff pretty much falls out of the repertoire. It's hard to imagine anybody else being being that, uh, that figure. And yeah, he is writing, um, he's writing for, for audiences and I think in the in the past, critics used to feel a bit um, superior to that, or to feel oh, the it's the, the audiences are to blame for rude jokes or lame bits of comedy or or something. You you say oh, this is what this is the stuff he threw in for the groundlings. I th I think that's to minimise the sort of sophistication of audiences and also um, part of a. a, a uh, one critical strand which I think wish, wishes Shakespeare had been a poet rather than a than a dramatist. But Shakespeare's a, a full-on dramatist. We talked about Venus and Adonis and how successful it was, but as soon as the theatres reopened, Shakespeare's back to the theatre. He doesn't keep writing 
narrative poems, even though he's good at it and could have made a living at it. That's not what he wants to do. It's really clear. He's a, he's a man of the theatre and all the sort of excitement and teamwork and, and, and collaborative energy that with audiences and with other colleagues that that brings. We had to wait until the plague was over, though. Yeah, but they always knew they were going to go back. I think... I don't think the plague, in terms of theatre, was an existential crisis for theatres. Um, and that's that may be a good thing for us to remember now. They knew they just had to sit it out. Um, and Shakespeare, you know, when when the plague is lifted, when the in 1603, and the, and the uh, Shakespeare's company perform at Hampton Court... Uh, they've got their backlist comedies is what people seem to want to see uh, and they've got two new plays they've, they've they've used the time well they've got measure for measure and othello so keep at it that's what i'm saying to all the theater people <laughs> keep at it yeah you may well be using this time to write your own othello and measure for measure um uh thank you so much emma smith it could go on forever but we have to we have to end it there um really fascinating to talk to you Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for reading my book so carefully and creatively. I really love talking to you about it. Thank you. That's all from us. Thanks for joining us again on the Prospect interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Rebecca Liu is our producer. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you again next week.